0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6. We're going to be looking at 10 verses in Matthew 6, so we want everybody to have a Bible, be able to look along with us. So these brothers have some Bibles, they're going to make their way toward the back as they do get their attention if you need a Bible, and they'll give you one of those, and it's marked at Matthew 6, and that Bible is our gift to you. We want everybody to not only have one today, we want you to have a Bible all the time, and uh, so that is our gift to you. Please accept that and make use of it. Matthew 6. Earlier this year, the leaders of Orange Park Bible Church in Florida asked me to record a video for their congregation in anticipation of the arrival of their new pastor and family, who was our associate pastor, our former associate pastor, Matt Owen. The leaders there asked me to offer some ways that the church there could facilitate a smooth transition for the Owens as they settled into the new city that they were moving to and into a new ministry. So I recorded a 12-minute video in which I offered some thoughts on that. And then toward the end, I said, we'll be praying that you all will be able to help Matt with a years-long struggle that he's had and for which we've tried to help him, but to no avail. This problem, I said, is really a life-dominating sin that needs to be corrected, but yet for all our best efforts, we've been unsuccessful. And I said to them, I should have told you about this in the interview that I had with your pulpit committee some weeks ago, so forgive me for the omission, but I need to let you all know that uh, Matt is an Ohio State fan. (laughs) Now I can, and we can, joke about that but the truth is our various commitments to our teams is so fanatical and thus the word fan that we can assign a seriousness and an energy to it that results in contempt and in all matter manner of foolishness i mean think about it grown men will paint their faces in the colors of their team They will regularly wear the jerseys and uniform of their team, and I'm not going to look around much to see what you guys have on. Some will neglect valuable time with their families for their favorite team or or sport. Now, you know that we're supposed to love our neighbor, but if you're really committed to this kind of thing, you find yourself asking theological questions like, are people from Ohio my neighbor? Are Ohioans made in the image of God. (laughs) And I have to confess that I've resembled some of that kind of thinking over the years. In fact, I shudder to remember this, but I do it by way of confession to let you know I can relate. Uh, When my wife and I were dating for the full year of 1984, I was so devoted to our local baseball team, the Detroit Tigers, That everywhere I went, I had a transistor radio. That's what we had back in 1984. And I can remember that we had a family outing with her family. And I'm dating her, and I'm getting to know her family, but this outing was at the same time the Tigers were playing. So I was at the outing, but I was not really there because I had this transistor radio glued to my ear listening to the later world champion Tigers play their game. Devotion to the cause. Whatever the cause is, and sports is certainly a big one, can make one forget his identity. Recently, I had the opportunity to attend a Red Wings game, and I've been a Red Wings fan over the years, and this is the only opportunity I've ever had. I was given some tickets that someone came into possession of, and uh, I was able to sit at the glass, at glass level, right around the, uh, the corner, just about 10 feet off of the, off of the goal. And I, along with the guys who were there with me, we would celebrate each time that someone's body came crashing into the boards (laughs) and someone's face is smushed into the glass and like little kids, we pounded the glass with approval. And I thought to myself later, you know, here's what happened. This, the, the guy who was to my left was the Joe Vision guy. He had a camera. He's the one who puts up the camera on people in the crowd during, during breaks. And he's sitting on a, a little stool. And one of these checks into the boards was so ferocious that it moved the boards and knocked this guy off his stool. So we laughed about that. And I thought to myself later, you know, what if I had struck up a conversation with the guy next to me? And he asked me, so what do you do for a living? And I would, I would just have to tell him that I'm the leader of a, a religious group. <laughs> and I think I would tell him I'm a Jehovah's Witness. As, uh... <clears throat> but you see, friends, we choose what or who it is that's important to us. And when we make that choice, those priorities become ours. Our fortunes are tied to it or to them. If they do well, then we do well. If they are down, then we are down. And in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, he's dealing with ultimate allegiances. And in the passage that we considered last week, he made the stark, absolute assertion in verse 24, at the end of verse 24, You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is saying that this is a zero-sum game. That when you've served the one, you've taken from the other. Hear that. When you serve the one, you are then taking from the other. It's not you can spread it. It is a zero-sum game. Now, we saw last week that money is singled out by Jesus... Because it's the means of pursuing and obtaining what it is we desire. And as such then, money reveals what we care about the most. How we use our money and how we pursue money reveals what our heart's desires are. And now today in verse 25, this is the way Jesus starts. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Now, when he starts that verse, verse 25, with the word, therefore, it's connecting to what we saw last week from verses 19 to 24. Jesus says in that passage last week that you have the choice of two competing zero-sum gods. And if you choose anything or anyone other than the true and living God, then it is a matter of idolatry because that someone or that something has become an idol a replacement for God. And money represents that then because, as I said, it allows us to pursue what we really desire. And you will then look to it for the things that you should look to God for. When you choose a God, little g, His priorities become your priorities. And if you choose money as your God, then you will prioritize those things that money can obtain. Having chosen your God, you then adopt, as most important to you, what is important to your God. You know which God you're serving, by which category of things you're concerned with, by what it is that you think about most, by what it is that you pursue. And Jesus is saying you can't serve two masters, you can't serve God and money, And we're going to see how he then connects that truth with the worry that goes with the pursuit of money and what money can obtain. Let's ask God to help us, and then we'll look at this passage together. Father, thank you for once again allowing us to gather as your people around your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you in particular for the words of the Lord Jesus preserved for us. These marvelous, life-giving words. Grant us the desire to give our attention to them. Grant us the ability to apply them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, each week we supply for you an outline that's inserted in your program. So if you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out so that you can follow along. And the first thing I say in that outline is this. This passage is teaching us, first of all, that Christians do not care about things. Christians do not care about things. Now when I use the word care there, sometimes in your New Testament, the English word care is used to translate the same Greek word that is sometimes also translated worry. So you could say Christians do not worry about things. So when I say care, we don't care about things, I mean we don't worry about things. We don't have anxiety about things. Now let me say quickly, it does not mean that we have no concerns and a little bit later, I'll differentiate between worry and legitimate concern. But the Bible certainly teaches that there is such a thing as legitimate concern about areas of responsibility that have been assigned to us. For example, in Second Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says this, I face the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And this placed a weight upon him, a pressure upon him, because it's a responsibility and a legitimate responsibility that had been assigned to him. But then there is worry and anxiety, care about things that are of lesser priority. And we see an example of that in the story of Jesus visiting His friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha in the city of Bethany. And they were preparing for their visit with Jesus. And the Bible says this about one of the sisters, Martha. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And that word distracted, same word for for worry in your, your New Testament. She was worried. She had anxiety about the preparations. Jesus, you remember, had to correct her about that. And Jesus says another form of illegitimate uh, concern, of, of worry, anxiety, is seen in the parable that he told of the Word of God falling on, as seed falling on different kinds of soil. And Jesus said this The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked. By life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. The Bible just says very, very clearly and very directly of this variety of anxiety, this variety of worry and concern do not be anxious about anything. Sinful worry is this, then, friends. There is legitimate concern, as we saw from the Apostle Paul. We all have responsibilities for which we need to be concerned and attentive. But there is a kind of anxiety, a kind of worry that is sinful. Sinful worry is focus on lesser things or things I cannot change. Sinful worry is focus upon lesser things. Now we'll see what the the greater things are in a bit. But sinful worry is focus on lesser things or things that I cannot change. And I say the or things I cannot change for this reason. There may be very legitimate things that I have concern about and they are priority things. Perhaps uh, things like how are my children going to, to turn out after I've raised them, after they've moved out, what are they going to do? But I may not be able to change that. And sinful worry then is focusing either on lesser things or on things that I cannot change. So Christians do not care about things. And that means a number of things that I have in your outline. There are reasons why we do not care about stuff, about material things. The first one is this, because life is too important. We don't care about material things because life is too important. Verse 25, Jesus asks the question, Is is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? You see, friends, when we worry about things like food and clothes, we're saying something about our view of what life is, and we're also saying something about our view of God. I mean, think of it, the self-centered person is, by definition, not centered on God. And so their view of life is reduced to earthly things and earthly concerns. If he does believe in God, his God, little g, is apparently irrelevant to what life is really about in his view, and that is these earthly things, these physical things, these material things, his material and physical well-being. But Jesus is saying life is more than matter. Life is more than material. Life is more than the physical. It's more than we can see. And and therefore, most reality shows don't actually show reality because most of them don't address our relationship with God. And that is the major part of reality, a spiritual reality. We say we believe. We say that we believe that life is both physical and spiritual. But hear this, friends. When we're focused on and worried about the physical, we betray that that's really what life is all about in our view. You remember that God said, man shall not live by, do you remember? Bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so for us, life is more than the physical material world. But also, since life comes directly from God, then why should we worry and fret about His giving us food and drink and clothing that's necessary for life? God will not go halfway. He gave you life, and He'll maintain it as long as He wills. If there is a God who has given us this great gift of life, and of course He has, then we need not be anxious about the little things that we need day by day. That's what Jesus is saying. Life is more than this little stuff. And your God is the one who gave you this life. And having given you this life, he will certainly sustain you in it. So Christians do not care about things. They do not give their worry and anxiety to things. Because life is too important. It's more than that stuff. It's more than things. But I also say, secondly, because we are too valuable. Life is too important and we are too valuable. Verse 26 Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now, birds couldn't worry uh, even if they wanted to because they're made, not made in the image of God. And therefore, like all non-human creation, they do not have the faculty of conceptual thinking. They live instinctively. And what they do, they do by nature. They're, they're programmed to do it. Just as, just as an aside, when, when modern science, in particular modern psychiatry, removes the spiritual dimension from their view of humanity, then humans are treated like animals, as if they are mechanistic and only instinctive and they don't have this conceptual ability to think. But humans are fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says. And we have this ability because we are made in the image of God. But even those lower aspects of creation, birds included, who don't have that ability, nevertheless, were made by a caring creator who has given them their instincts and thereby supplies for their needs. And so Jesus says they don't sow or reap or build barns for their their excess. And then in verses 28 to 30, notice what he says. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. In the Bible, flowers and grass illustrate the brevity and the fragility of of life. In a number of places in Scripture this is is said. One is in Isaiah chapter 40. All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And so we learn from a passage like that that human life is feeble and it's fleeting And that we are defenseless against many of the things that might befall us. We are as short-lived as plants and as easily slain as animals, the Bible teaches. And then you have the same kind of teaching that Jesus is alluding to in Psalm 103, which says this, "...the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more." But Psalm 103 has more than just that and just what Isaiah 40 that I quoted a bit ago says. It has more, and that more points us to the same thing that Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice this portion of Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. And then it goes on to say, That the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower. The wind blows over and it's gone. Its place is remembered no more. But before that, it says that God knows what we are like and He knows our frame and He knows that we are dust. And then after that, notice what it says. Even though we are temporary and fleeting from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him and His righteousness with their children's children. And so, friends, as we think about the lower creation of things like birds and grass and flowers that Jesus mentions, it could make us miserable because we, like those things, have short lives that are easily extinguished. And that's true for all that we have in this life, not only our own lives. But hear this, if your life is found in God and in your relationship with Him, then your value will last as long as He does. If your life is found in more than the stuff, if it's found in God and in your relationship with Him, then your life and the value of that life will last as long as God does. And how long is God going to last? From everlasting to everlasting, the Bible says. Now, in all of this, when Jesus talks about care for the birds and flowers as if it it just sort of happens. He's not saying that we should not expend effort to obtain the things that we need. Birds themselves instinctively make provision for the future. In fact, some argue that birds, that there's no creature that works harder than the birds do. But Jesus is saying that in our labor, we do our work, and hear this, we leave it at that. We expend the energy and the strength that God has given us, and then we leave it, leave it at that. We labor as if it depends on us, but we trust because we know that ultimately the outcome all depends on God. And so with that then, the birds, Jesus says, and then the grass and the flowers of the field, the wildflowers that grow in the field, with all of that, verse 30, Jesus says, If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? And at the end of verse 26, after he's talked about the birds, he asks the question, are you not much more valuable than they? Now in both cases, in the case of the birds and of the flowers, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater, from the lower creation to the highest creation, humanity, To say this, if God cares for them, then of course he will care for you. You are more valuable than they are. And you are valuable because you're made in my image and they are not. You are valuable because you reflect me. You're valuable in a way that they are not because you have a quality they do not have. Namely, you're made in my image. And so you can reflect me back to me. Now, here's what that means, friends. When I care about you, I'm demonstrating how much God says I care about me. You see, if God made us in his image, and if God is remaking us, as the Bible teaches, to be remade into his image, having fallen, having had that image distorted by the entrance of sin, now God is on this reclamation, restoration project of remaking these mirrors that were to reflect him back to him so that now the cracks are mended And we reflect him clearly. And one day we will be like him, the Bible says, for we shall see him as he is. We will reflect him clearly. Now, that being the case, when God looks at us, God looks at us to see his own reflection. And God, therefore, cares for those who are imaging that reflection back to him as he would care for himself. There is no chance then, none, that God will not care for his own people. I said earlier that birds can't contemplate in their thinking. They act and they react instinctively. But just imagine for a moment if they could. You can imagine a conversation like this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly Father, such as cares for you and me. Do you see, friends, that when we worry, sinfully worry, about things that we cannot change or about lesser things, that we are really saying, I don't have a father. Or if I have a father, he's a father that does not care. But of course, the birds do not have a father. They have a creator, and we have both. And He cares for us not only as our Creator, but as our Heavenly Father. And so Christians do not care about things. They do not worry, do not have anxiety about things, because life is too important, because human life is too valuable. And then I say in your outline, because worry is too weak. Worry is too weak. Jesus says it this way in verse 27. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? If you're focused on earthly things like food and health and clothing, then it follows that you'll want to enjoy them for as long as you can. But just as worry cannot provide the things you want, it also cannot provide This the time to enjoy them. In fact, worry and anxiety may well shorten your life. So if the idea here is, what Jesus is saying is that there's a mindset, there's an earthly mindset that is focused on the things of earth, material, physical things. If you're focused on that, and that's what you give your energies to and your mental energy to, and you're worried and you have anxiety about, well, then it follows you're going to want to enjoy that stuff for as long as you can. But who by worrying can extend his life? And in fact, worrying may shorten your life. Money, the means by which we get the stuff we want, is a very weak God because it's not always there. And even when it is there, you worry yourself about how long it will be there and whether or not the next installment will come. I remember when I was a kid, maybe junior high, early senior high, I overheard my mom talking to uh, another mom the mother of one of my older brother's uh, friends and they were they didn't know I heard them but they were sharing war stories about raising boys and th- thankfully they were talking about my brothers and not about me at that point <clears throat> but I remember this other mother saying this it stuck with me she said you know when Timmy has money he's just wonderful when Timmy has money, he's, he's just wonderful. But notice, when he has it, everything's good because, because Timmy's God is with him. But even when we have it, we worry about how much, how long, how to get more. And friends, if the things that money can buy are your priority, then money is your God and worry is always its slave when money is there it provides happiness for that for the time being but only for the time being and when you don't have it then hear this it still has you when you don't have money if money's your god money still has you and you know it still has you if you're worried about it you now it may seem like you know in my christian walk it's it's kind of the same with the real true and living god Because we are up and down in our relationship with Him, just as others are up and down in their relationship with their various gods, like money and sports. But hear this, the up and down process in the Christian life is different than that of those other lesser gods, would-be gods. The up and down process is inherent in those relationships. It is not inherent in our relationship with God, because He is always there, unlike money. He is always on top, as it were, unlike your favorite sports team. He is always faithful. We can always have joy. And when we do not, it's not because he has failed, but because we have failed. So how then do I go about dividing up those legitimate areas of concern versus sinful worry? I've already defined sinful worry as focus upon Lesser things or things that I cannot change. We're going to talk about those greater things in just a bit. But what about those things that I cannot change? I've shared with you in, in the past this helpful concept for me, and I hope it's helpful to you or has been helpful to you if you've heard it. And that is we have two spheres, each of us does, of uh, our focus. Our focus. One is what's called our circle of concern. Our circle of concern. And your circle of concern can be very large. There can be all kinds of things that you just have a concern about. You you wonder how they're going to turn out. You hope they turn out a particular way. I mean, I I have a concern (laughs) about who the next coach at the University of Michigan is going to be. (laughs) I have a concern. And if you come to my house and you see a shrine to Jim Harbaugh there, ignore that, all right? <laughs> but that's part of just something I know about, something I'm aware of, something I know has consequences, is, therefore is a momentous decision. And so I have some level of concern about that. But then there's this other circle. There's your circle of concern, and then there's your circle of responsibility. Circle of concern... And circle of responsibility. And your circle of responsibility is those things that God has specifically assigned to you. And are matters of obedience then for you. And God says to us, by my grace, fulfill the responsibility that I've assigned to you. And so your circle of responsibility is always much smaller than your circle of concern. And if you find yourself giving yourself to those things that are in your circle of concern, then you are sinfully worrying because these are things that you cannot change. They're not your responsibility. So Christians do not worry about things. They do not focus or care about material things. Because life is too important, because we are too valuable, because money is too weak, it can't deliver what it promises and then, fourthly, because we are too different to do that. We, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, as disciples of Christ, are too different to give our concerns and our energies to the things of the world. Now, why do I say that we are different? Here's why. Verse 31. Jesus says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Verse 32. For the pagans run after all these things. Now, the first word in verse 32 is important. For the pagans do that. That is, you you don't worry about material things, lesser things. But here's why, one of the reasons you don't. For, because. That's what the pagans do. So a good rule of thumb for you as a follower of Jesus is that if the pagans do it, you don't. The unbelieving world shows its value system by what it does, by what it chases after, by what it prioritizes. And so many professing Christians, it's amazing that we're wannabe pagans. I want to be like the pagans. I want to follow the value system of the world. And none of us would actually say that. But in fact, that's the way many of us pursue our lives. But Jesus says, you're different. The pagans do that. And his assumption is that you understand what a marvelous thing it is that you have been called out of the world and to him and you now march to the beat of a different drummer. And you now hear the siren call of a different master. And therefore, you don't care what the pagans do. You care about what God wants us to do and what's valuable to Him. So we live in a pagan world. We live in a fallen world. And we live among unbelievers and work among unbelievers all the time. And it is indeed difficult for us to live in a godly way in an ungodly world. And we have to do some of the same things that the pagans do. We have to go and work for a living. We have to pay our bills. Bad things happen to us like bad things happen to unbelieving people. And so when I see that parallel, when I see me doing some of the same things they do, am I acting like a pagan then? Just because in some cases there's overlap between what they do and what we do? I have to spend money to get the things that we need. I have to make the money. You have to do the same thing. Hear this. I'm not serving money when I work, or when I save, or when I purchase. I'm not serving money when I work or save or purchase. Here's what we're doing. We're saying this to the world as Christians. If we have the kind of priority system that Jesus is going to tell us about, we're not serving money as our God when we save or work or purchase. Here's what we're saying to the pagans, to the world. I'm serving my God by using yours. I'm serving my God in the way I use yours. And that's the way Christians are to approach money. This is simply a tool for me to use for my God. It ain't my God. It doesn't buy my happiness. It doesn't buy my joy. I don't pursue it like the pagans do, but I use their God in order to serve my God. We're too different for us to care about and chase after things. So Christians do not care about things. And then I say secondly in your outline, Christians care about God. Christians care about God. Verse 33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So the pagans run after these things. The pagans in verse 32, they seek these things. They pursue these things. But notice what Jesus says. You do seek something, but it's not that. You seek and you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and then these things go with it. When you care about God and what God cares about, then God takes care of those lesser things. The Bible speaks of often ambition that is misdirected. Rather than ambition for God, it's ambition for ourselves. And it's the litany of manifestations of the sin nature in Galatians chapter 5. The Bible says the acts of the flesh are obvious. And then it lists some of those, jealousy, but notice selfish ambition. And the Bible implores us very directly in Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition. In James chapter 3, we're given two kinds of wisdom, worldly wisdom and and heavenly wisdom. And it says this, where you have selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But there is such a thing as ambition for God and His priorities. Thanks be to God, not selfish ambition but ambition that says, Lord, I'm going to use the sustenance that you've supplied for me, the money that you give to me, the material possessions you give to me, and I'm going to prioritize you and your kingdom. And I'm going to pursue what's important to you. Rather than selfish ambition, it's godly ambition. Romans 15 speaks of this kind of godly ambition. Paul says this, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. In First Thessalonians 4, we are told, all of us, all Christians... Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And in the context, it's lead a quiet life so you can be effective in evangelism for God. And we are told that our ultimate goal is that we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says, for we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But the verse right before that says this, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him. Now, what keeps us from doing that? What causes us to seek what the pagans seek rather than seek God and what's important to God? What causes us to do that? The end of verse 30, look at what Jesus says. He says, you of little faith. Here's what causes us to do that. Here's what causes us to chase the stuff that everybody else chases. Because we don't believe, y'all remember that the word faith in your New Testament is the same word for belief. So when Jesus says, you of little faith, you could supply there, you of little belief. You don't believe. And if I were to ask for a show of hands in this room, how many of you are believers? I'm not asking for that, but if I were... A lot of hands would be raised. I'm a believer. I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe Jesus is God the Son. I believe every word of the book that we have in our laps right now. We would say, I'm a believer. But friends, in our attitudes and in our thoughts and in the way we direct our energies and our priorities, we often belie a different set of beliefs. Jesus says, oh, you of little belief. You really don't believe your Father will take care of you. That's why you run after these things the same way the pagans do. Christians do not care about things. Christians care about God, and then lastly, Christian God, excuse me, cares about Christians. God cares about Christians. Into verse thirty-two, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And is anybody here going to say? i know my heavenly father knows what i need but i don't believe he'll supply and that's what jesus is indicting here a lack of faith that says i don't believe he'll supply even though i oh, i know he knows me he knows me intimately and he knows every last thing that i need oh dear friends what an indictment on our hearts God cares about Christians. He is your Father. And He is the creator of those birds and of those flowers. He cares for them. How much more, Jesus says, will He not care for you? Because He not only created you, He has adopted you into His family. You are His child, and He is your Father. Meeting our material needs is inherent in the relationship that we have with God. It goes with it. He's your father. He will take care of you. That's why Paul could with great confidence say in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, and my God will supply all of your need. Now, some of you came into this room with cares, (laughs) all manner and variety of those cares. Many of them focused upon material things. And friends, God Almighty is saying that if you are his child, I am your father, and I will care for you. You don't worry. You don't have anxiety. You don't pursue the things that the pagans pursue. And that's why I titled this message. You see at the top of your outline? Who cares? And I'm asking you that question. Who does care? And Jesus' answer to that question is, your heavenly father cares. And so your take-home truth is this, Christians have no reason to worry, and we have every reason to trust our God. And we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And as we do, I want to invite some of you who came into this room without knowing whether or not God is your Father. You see, all of this is predicated upon there being a difference between you and the pagans. The pagans do not have God as their Father, you do. If you know Jesus, but all of these promises about God taking care of you and you not having to worry about lesser things are only applicable to those who have God as their father, who are in his family. Now, how does that happen? Well, here's how it happens. You need to recognize, realize that you're a sinner. Your sin, my sin, is manifest in so very many ways, but one of them is we chase after things rather than prioritizing God and what matters to Him. And so realize that you're a sinner. Recognize, though, that God the Son came and died to pay the penalty for your sin. And He invites you into His family and a relationship with Him. But you repent of your sin. Lord, I've been pursuing my own agenda. I've been going my own way. I've been chasing the things that allure me and the things that allure the, the, the society and the culture, and I can, am conformed to it, but I'm going to repent of that, and I'm going to go your way, and I'm going to prioritize you and what matters to you. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. You ask him, Lord, deliver me, save me. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sin. I want to follow you with my life. I ask you to save me. And he will do that. And he will change your values so that you are one of these people who are not the pagans, one of these people who march to that beat of that different drummer now. And brothers and sisters, for those of us who worry because we are committed to lesser things, we worry because we have taken into our own hands things that we cannot change. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for speaking these words when you walked the earth, demonstrating the profound wisdom that could only come from the mind of God. Well, Lord, you know us intimately because you made us. You made us to reflect you back to you. You know everything about us. You know what's wrong with us. You know what entices us. You know just the words to say you have the words of eternal life. Thank you for these words. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells those who have been adopted into your family so that these words matter to us, they resonate with us, they convict us, they draw us, they delight us. And Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit moves upon the hearts of those that are outside your family to draw them in. We ask you, God, the Holy Spirit, to move on hearts in this sacred moment to cause them to see that they need a completely radical change of vision to follow a new master rather than following the master of self reflected in money that they need to follow the one who created them for and about himself and so lord we ask you to do what only you can do draw hearts out of the world into yourself and to the lord jesus christ help us that who for whom you have done that to reflect the values that we have obtained from you, that we say we believe. Help us, O Lord, to be people of great faith, of strong faith, because we believe in our God and we trust our God in all things. May you be glorified as a result of those you save and those you are sanctifying. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.